Good morning, everyone. Hope you're all well this morning. It is great to be with you again. Another week, worshiping God together, singing, praying, hearing God's Word preached, preaching God's Word. If you're brand new here this morning and you don't know who I am, I'm Chad, pastoral intern here. Uh, honored to have that title here. Um, so welcome to you if you're visiting. Welcome to you if this is church home and has been your church home for 10 years or longer. And special welcome to the kids in here. Welcome, kids. I'm going to preach for an hour and a half in honor of you. Just because, parents, I just want to see really how sanctified you are, patient you are. I promise I won't, I won't do that. Um, the fifth Sunday, whenever there's a fifth Sunday in the month, we have the kids in with us. And I think there's two sides to the coin. I may be speaking out of turn, but in my mind, there's two sides to that coin. To give the teachers a break and to let the kids just experience this with us. It's good for the kids. I know it's hard. Okay, I have little ones. Audrey's going to be distracted. Uh, but it's good for the kids to see this church body lifting holy hands in worship and hearing the preaching of God's Word. My son is five, yet when we're here and he's in here during a sermon or when I'm listening to a sermon on a podcast, Zeke will say, Dad, what's propitiation mean? And I'm like, whoa, you're listening? That's amazing. So just an encouragement to you parents and you kids, um, this is good to be together. So I want to start like I do with, with a little story, not a story. I want to start with, I want to give you guys some world records examples. These are some examples. This was really fun research. I almost got lost for hours in this research, but listen to some of the world records in various sports. The most stolen bases in baseball is by a guy named Ricky Henderson. He stole 1,406 bases in his career. This is the only negative one I had to throw it in here. The most interceptions thrown in NFL football. Anyone have a guess? Brett Favre, 305. <laughs> Way to go, Brett. He was really good, too, though, obviously. The fastest marathon for a woman is Paula Radcliffe. She ran it in two hours and 15 minutes and 25 seconds. The longest hitting streak in baseball. This is amazing. Joe DiMaggio, 56 games he had a hit. Most career points in hockey. Wayne Gretzky. Jake, you do that one. There he is back there giving me a wink. 2,857 points in his career. Most consecutive Wimbledon titles for women. Maria Martina Navratilova. She won six. I used to be a track and field athlete, so I had to throw a track one in here. Men's 100-meter sprint, the world record. Usain Bolt, 9.58 seconds. That's amazing. I saw that one in, on TV. Uh, most career heavyweight boxing record, or best boxing record for a heavyweight, Rocky Marciano, 49-0. Never lost. This was a crazy one. Most pull-ups in 24 hours by a woman. Paula Gorlo, 4,081 in 24 hours. Wow. Many of these people are in their respective halls of fame. I said fame, not faith, even though that's what we've been talking about. We hear of their amazing feats and even see some of them. I saw Usain Bolt on TV run a 9.58. And we think to ourselves, wow, they are amazing. And they did amazing things. And I could never be like them. 
I would never be like them. And I'm afraid that's the way many of us interpret the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. We read about these Old Testament saints and think, wow, I could never be like them. They were amazing. And they did amazing things. Brothers and sisters, that is emphatically not the point of Hebrews 11. The point of this chapter is that we can and should be like these people. Not because they had amazing skills that we could never have, but because they had faith. Faith in the same God that we have faith in. The author is landing the plane in this chapter. And he's giving a few final examples of people who have walked by faith and the things that they did while they lived on earth and longed for heaven. I've divided the text into four parts this morning. We will see people and prophets, we'll see power, we'll see persecution, and we'll see perfection. I did it. I finally did it. There it is for you, for you note takers, or if you want to take a picture. Uh, Before we dive in, though, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are honored to have been woken up this morning and given breath. Today is a day that you've made. Help us rejoice and be glad in it. There is much evil that happens every day, Lord, that we don't know about, and you see it all, but um, my heart is heavy, and it was this week as we heard about what happened in Texas. I just lift up the people there who are in deep pain and frustration and anger. Lord, I pray that you would draw near to them, that you would not allow the faith of your saints to weaken when we see evil to strengthen and to cling to you and to say, Lord, we, we don't know why these things happen, why they're allowed to happen, but you're good, Lord. You sent your Son. How will you not also with him give us all things? And so we cling to that promise this morning. We acknowledge, Lord, that your word is food for our souls, and we need it this morning. We need another bite of the living bread and another drink of the living water, who is Christ our Lord. So I pray that uh, you would be honored and glorified in our hearts this morning. You would use me as a weak and sinful and broken vessel to sustain the faith of your saints and maybe draw those to faith who aren't yet yours. pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, so point number one, we'll consider people and prophets. That's in verse 32. Verse 32, the author states that he doesn't have time to give a detailed retelling of all these other people and prophets. Technically, judges and one king, uh, but people works better for my alliteration, as you know. Samuel was a prophet, and then it speaks of even just in general, prophets. And if the author of Hebrews didn't feel like he had time to do a deep dive into all this list, then I don't have time to do a deep dive into all this list. But remember, the audience was well acquainted with the Old Testament. They were Hebrews, they were Jewish Christians. So he, the author could mention these names and they would be able to recall each person's life. So by way of brief reminder, 
uh, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and even Samuel a little bit were all judges. Samuel was like a judge and a prophet. And this means that they lived before Israel had a king. And we read accounts of their lives in the book of Judges. If you want to read more and study, read the book of Judges. Uh, it's the closest thing to a Christian reality TV show we have. It's kind of a guilty pleasure. It's a crazy book. And if you want to read of Samuel and David, you read First Samuel. In the book of Judges, though, we read uh, of a cycle that Israel is stuck in. Israel would turn their back on God. They would embrace other gods, the gods of the Canaanites, and God would allow Israel to be conquered and or oppressed by a neighboring nation. And the people would cry out to God, oh no, Lord, we've messed up, and God would send a judge to come in and deliver them. And then they'd get comfortable, and then they'd fall into idolatry again, and the cycle would repeat. And so each of these four judges mentioned in our text are ones whom God used to deliver Israel out of oppression or bondage or both. And they saw amazing acts of God's power. And through those acts of power, they saw victories for Israel. Victories won for Israel by God through their faith. But none of these judges had a spotless record. None of them. We've been saying that. Stephen and I have been saying that for the past three weeks as we walked through this chapter. In fact, they all struggled to believe and to walk by faith. At times, they were overwhelmed by their circumstances. And at times, they were blatantly disobedient and sinful. These people, the judges, the prophets, the kings, King David, are known for, listen to this, not trusting God and putting Him to the test, making Him prove Himself. They're known for being extremely passive. They're known for being disobedient, lustful, manipulative, conniving, raging, murdering, fornicating, and suicidal. Most of those at the end were Samson. You've read the story. They're known for being children of prostitutes and making crazy vows to God that forced them to kill their own children. They're known for adultery and murder and doing a horrible job of teaching their children in the ways of the Lord. And the point is this, brothers and sisters, these final pictures in the hall of faith were, were normal, sinful, frail people, just like me and just like you. If you have completely doubted God and begged for him to prove something to you, even though he already has, you are like Gideon. If you have been passive and unwilling to do the hard thing, you're like Barak. If you've been disobedient, lustful, manipulative, conniving, raging, murderous, or Jesus would say even angry at your brother in your heart. If you fornicated, you're like Samson. If you add adultery to that, you're like David. If you've made rash vows to God, I'll never look at that website again. You're like Jephthah. If you haven't taught your children well in the things of the Lord, you're like Samuel. But God used each one of these people and prophets to do amazing things. They saw God's mighty power and victory. They endured persecution, all in hope of the perfection of heaven. Brothers and sisters, the hall of faith isn't full of people who had an extra measure of the Holy Spirit. It's full of people who struggled hard to walk by faith. They probably wrestled with quitting. There were times the situation was too bleak or too hard. They were disobedient, sinful, and frail. And that sounds like us. And that's the point of this chapter. Stephen and I have been saying it for the last four weeks. 
But I say it again, these saints are commended to us not because they had special grace, an extra measure of the Holy Spirit, or amazing skills, but because they had faith. It's called the hall of faith, not the hall of stolen bases, the hall of 4,000 pull-ups that you're never going to be able to do. It's the hall of faith. Their faith was tainted with much sin and weakness, and at times it was a tiny and a weak faith. But it's not about the size of their faith. It's about the size of the object of their faith. And the object of their faith is God. And all of His greatness and grandeur and glory and power. And it was through their faith that they were used by God to ensure powerful victories and endure persecution. So let's look at power, verses 33 through the first half of 35. Through their faith, we see the saints of old saw God's power in war, in weakness, and in resurrection. So first, let's consider war. I've lumped some of these descriptive words together. It says that they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight. Many battles probably come to our minds if we've read the Old Testament at least once. But having just read this chapter, we should think of people like Gideon, and Joshua, who we heard about last week, through their faith, God gave them victory over their enemies. And so often, as I thought about this, so often, I didn't have time to study every battle in the Old Testament, by the way. Maybe that would be a fun uh, Bible study. But as it came to mind, I realized it seems like almost every time, maybe I could say every time, God made sure His people and their enemies knew that the victory came from the Lord. I don't sound crazy when I say that, right? Again, I didn't study every battle, but it seemed like God always made sure everyone's going to know that the victory came from me, not from Israel. You think about the ten plagues, the Red Sea taking out Pharaoh and his army, the battle against the Amalekites where God gave victory to Israel whenever Moses had his hand raised up, the day the sun stood still and God gave victory over five kings and their armies who had united against Israel. Gideon and his army, you read the story and he starts with 32,000 people and God says, we're going to cut it down to 10,000. And then God says again, we're going to cut it down to 300. And then he gives Gideon victory. Or Joshua and the victory over Jericho that we heard Stephen preach on last week. They simply encircled the city a few times and the walls fell down. The victory belonged to the Lord this is all over the Scripture. Let me give you a couple cross-references, though. Proverbs 21.31 says this, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Psalm 60.11, O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. That's God's power in war. Let's consider weakness now. We read things like this, they, were, they stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. Stopping the mouths of lions should make us think of the story of Daniel. Kids, how many of you know the story of Daniel? You guys do? Good job. So, so the bad guys say, you can't worship God anymore. And what does Daniel say? Does he stop worshiping God? No, he keeps worshiping God. So what do they do? 
Yeah, he kept praying. They arrested him. They threw him in a den or a jail with lions. Think about how scary that would be. Have you guys seen the nature shows? Lions are scary. They're huge. They're the king of the jungle. They could have, I won't be vulgar, they could have eaten him. But God stopped their mouths. Because God showed his power even when Daniel was weak. The lions didn't eat him. But there are also stories of David, Samson, and Benaiah killing lions. They're cool stories. You can read them. Quenching the power of fire. That reminds us of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And are they burned up, kids? Were they burned up? No, they come out totally fine. They escape the edge of the sword. Maybe this is referring to David when he's running from his life, for his life, from Saul. He definitely avoided a spear. He barely missed it. It seems like it went to the wall. He got out of there. The point is, these saints were helpless. Friends, they were, they were helpless. They could not have helped themselves. They were too weak. They had no power. But by God's power, they were made strong. Through faith in the all-powerful God, they were helped in their desperate circumstances. Church family, we aren't Israel. We're not the prophets. Most of us probably aren't going to go to war with another country. God's not calling WCC to go take the promised land. We're in another war. And we're weak in it. And it's the war against our own sin. That's the primary war that we are all in every day. And the place we experience God's power and war and weakness is in our war against sin. We, like Daniel in the lion's den, we were helpless in the battle against sin. Apart from the grace of God, we would all be lifelong slaves to sin. Imagine that, being a slave to your sin from the day you're born till the day you die. We were too weak to merit salvation, to live lives pleasing to God or free ourselves from our own sin, but we can't help but consider the gospel now. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel is the good news that God accomplishes and has accomplished what sinners can't. God helps those who help themselves is one of the most unbiblical sayings any nominal Christian has ever said. God helps those who are totally helpless and weak to help themselves. He sent His own Son to die for our sins on the cross and to win our war against sin for us. 1 Corinthians 15.57 But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been freed from the power of sin, forgiven the penalty of sin, and someday even the presence of sin. And as we fight our sin in this life, we do good to remember God's grace is enough for each day. His power is made perfect in weakness. And there's a final example of God's power in verse 35. And it's the transition between power and point number three, persecution. And it's resurrection. You can see it right there in verse 35. That is probably a reminder of Elijah and Elisha, who were both used by God to raise people from the dead. 
But we who have the completed canon and the whole Bible, we can't help but remember Jesus Christ and all the people He brought back to life. Seeing God's power to raise people from the dead must be an amazing sight. But the truth is, in all of these accounts of people being raised back to life, they're brought back to this life. To this one. They were brought back to a sinful and broken world. All of them. Even Lazarus, who was raised by Jesus Christ himself. Lazarus had to die again. But I'm sure he wasn't afraid to die. Nor should we be. Because even if we don't experience God's power of an earthly resurrection, our hope is in the heavenly resurrection anyway. And that's how the author transitions from power to persecution. He says that some people were tortured, they didn't accept release, maybe implying that they could have been released if they denied their faith. But it says so that they might rise again to a better life. This was pretty much my whole sermon from two weeks ago. God thinks we need a reminder, so I'm going to give us a reminder. The saints of old had forward-looking faith. They longed to live in the heavenly city, the better country, where there is a better life, a perfect life. It seems the point the author is trying to make as he transitions from power to persecution is this. Whether we are on the mountaintop of God's powerful victories, or in the valley of persecution and maybe even death, we can't lose, friends, brothers and sisters, because the heavenly resurrection is coming. Death ushers us into His presence. And therefore, we can endure persecution and death. Let's consider what the author says about persecution, verses 36 through 38. First, he talks about defamation and detainment. Ever since... Ancient times, the people of God have been mocked, flogged, imprisoned. There are Old and New Testament examples of this, and even current examples of this. I pray that persecution never comes to our country, but it's all over the rest of the world. You guys know that. It's everywhere. But we definitely experience being mocked for our faith. Maybe personally you've experienced that with friends or people on the street. Maybe you've read a few internet articles or watched maybe even just one Hollywood movie and you will be mocked for your faith. There's a a story that came to me this week. Uh, It's a story of mocking because of a death. So it's kind of like two birds with one stone, a double whammy. Any of you ever heard of a guy named John Allen Chow? Okay, if you haven't, um, a few years ago, back in 2018, well, let me say this. He was a 26-year-old American, deeply devoted to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ being worshipped by all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. And he felt a calling by God to go reach an unreached people group in the Indian Ocean on the North Sentinel Island. And the Sentinelese had a reputation of being pretty violent towards outsiders, and this guy, John, he, he prayed and prepped for years and years before he went to this island. And uh, the fishing boats would only get him so close, and he had to get in a kayak. And the first day, he got literally run off the island by bows and arrows, waited 24 hours, and went back. And apparently a few hours later, some fishermen saw his body being dragged across the sand. He 
died for his faith in trying to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to these Sentinelese people. And that's sad. When anyone dies, it's sad. It's sad when a secular humanist who hates me because of my faith in Jesus dies. And there were many honoring articles of John Chow, but I was actually reminded of the ruthless articles that I read. And you can find them still if you search them and you find the secular websites. And I'm going to share what some of these secular websites said about John Chow. John Chow is not a martyr. Just a dumb American who thought the tribal... Forgot my Kleenexes. John Chow is not a martyr, just a dumb American who thought the tribals needed Jesus when the tribals already lived in harmony with God and nature for years without outside influence. I'm sorry, but John Chow is a deluded idiot. That's hard. It's hard to be mocked. We say sticks and stones break my bones, but words never hurt. But words hurt. That hurts. But that's been the experience of saints from the beginning till now, till today maybe. We consider death. John Chow is in a long line of martyrs who have gone before him. And the text says that the people of God has been stoned, have been stoned, <clears throat> sawn in two, and killed with the sword. Many prophets were stoned and killed with the sword. And tradition says that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. But remember what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is something much worse than death. John Chow knew that. We know that. It's one thing to say to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's one of our favorite verses. One of my favorite verses. But it's another to see examples of those who have actually given their lives for their faith. May God give us the faith to endure that, if that's what he calls any of us to. The final example of their persecution is destitution. The saints of old had uncomfortable clothing. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats. They were afflicted, mistreated, Many lacked the basic necessities of life and were homeless. They were, and we are, as I said two weeks ago, sojourners, exiles, strangers. We don't belong here. And the cool parenthesis there in the verse says, of whom the world was not worthy, at the beginning of verse 38. We're not worthy of the Son of God leaving heaven and coming to die on a cross for our sins. But we're reminded here that that the world isn't even worthy of people who give their lives for the faith. But yet God is good and loving. And not only has He sent His Son, but He's, He's sent people before us and who will come after us who will continue the walk of faith. 
and he turns this probably this on its head, the world would say, you're not worthy, you, you, you Christians, you believers in God, you prophets. You're not worthy for comfortable clothing and for homes and for good food. But God reminds us, no, it's not that way. It's the other way around. They could endure defamation and detainment, death and destitution, because they knew they didn't belong here anyway. And they longed for their heavenly home. And they walked by faith in that. And that's why they're commended, brothers and sisters. Verse 39, And all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. <clears throat> the ultimate fulfillment of the promise they hoped for is resurrection bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. They longed for perfection. That's in verse 40. God's plan from the foundation of time is that He would perfect all of His people at the same time. What they looked forward to is what we look forward to. Said it, they long for resurrection bodies, not only free from the power and penalty of sin, but even free from the presence of sin and to live in the presence of God. The same hope that sustained them sustains us. And it is only because of the perfection of Jesus that we can experience the perfection of heaven and live a life of faith. Jesus Christ is the perfect, sinless Son of God. He's the perfect High Priest. He offered a perfect sacrifice of Himself in the perfect sanctuary, and He's made a way to a perfect city. He's better and more perfect than angels and Moses. That's what this whole book has been about. And the Old Testament saints looked forward to this Messiah and the heavenly kingdom that He would usher in. And whatever they did, they walked by faith, imperfect though it was. We're not meant to read this hall of faith and say, wow, I could never be like them. We're meant to read it and say, wow, these people were sinful, frail, weak, disobedient people of faith who lived for the better life, the perfect life in heaven, and their God is our God. And if they made it, so can I. That's all I want you to hear this morning. When I'm writing a sermon, I'm, I'm thinking of what do I want you guys to hear? What do I want you to take away? And so often I come up with this long sentence that I don't even remember tomorrow. And the Lord just put on my heart this week, just make it simple. If they made it, so can we. Remember that tomorrow and Tuesday and the next shooting and the next horrendous thing that happens. If they made it, so can I. If they ran the race and made it to the finish line, so can we. I so badly want to preach Dan's sermon for next week, but he gets to preach it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 are some of the, my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It is so encouraging. It's the application of this chapter, but not just this chapter of Hebrews 1 through 11. We look at these saints and say, we should run the race. They did it. They made it to the finish line. So can I. Now, God's not going to use us in the same way that he used them. That's how we misread Hebrews 11. He has a purpose for each of us. Ephesians 2.10 says this, We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are full-time moms in here, stay-at-home moms. There's ER doctors. There's engineers. There's construction workers. There's software technicians who solve puzzles. 
There's teachers. There's headmasters. There's principals. God hasn't called you to be Moses, Abraham, Sarah, or David. He's called you to be you. He's called you to raise your babies in the fear of the Lord. He's called you to be an engineer to solve software puzzles to the glory of God. He's called you to have faith and to walk in faith as you do what He's called you to do. So be encouraged in your faith as you look at theirs. Again, if they ran their race and made it to the finish line, so will you. God, do it in us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is such food for our souls. It gives us uh, strength and encouragement to get through, Lord. And we trust as we look back at the saints of old that they made it. We're going to make it. Lord, we, I, I don't believe that, that you'll lose us. You'll sustain us to the end despite our imperfect faith and our sin and our disobedience and our frailty. Lord, I just pray so deeply again that you would just, that you would be the one by your spirit and through your word who has encouraged your saints to, to run hard, to walk by faith. And for those here who, who haven't placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, I pray that you'd be stirring in their hearts that they would do so even here and now. Love you, Lord. Pray that you'd be glorified as we continue to sing to you. And Thank you for today, Lord. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.